3: Hampton Court Palace is one of my favourite places in the world, I'm sure I'm not alone. But I was lucky enough to work there as a curator for three years, and that means I thought I knew all its secrets. I've been on the roofs, behind the astronomical clock, in rooms now only occupied by peeling Victorian wallpaper, and perhaps my most favourite moment of all, in the Great Hall after dark, in the depths of winter. Given that I still lead tours around it on a fairly regular basis, I thought I knew all there was to know about its history. But today's guest has showed me the depths of my hubris, and very entertainingly so too. Gareth Russell is a historian who's written about Catherine Howard in his biography Young and Damned and Fair, and about the Queen Mother in Do Let's Have Another Drink. He hosts the podcast Single Mort History, and his latest book is called The Palace. From the Tudors to the Windsors, 500 years of history at Hampton Court. Gareth Russell, welcome back to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for coming back.
4: Thank you for having me. I love us
3: we're talking because you have another delicious book out the palace which is the subtitle will give it away from the tudors to the windsor's 500 years of history at hampton court and it's such a fun read your prose is really enjoyable what's the guiding principle of the book would you say because this isn't an architectural history is it
4: no it's not first of all that's been done and done very well and i think you always have to hope to bring something at least faintly new, hopefully very new to the topic. And also architectural history is just not my bag. It's not my area of expertise. It is a social history. It's really the history of the country, but maybe more specifically the monarchy through Hampton Court. And each room is a different decade, different room and a different person who lived there, starting with a courtier of Henry VII and up to the current Princess of Wales when she visited in 2016.
3: Okay, so when we get to each episode. Can you tell us the year we're in and the room we're in as we move on? So I think we'll pick up the story in 1495. There is a story before that, but we're going to start with when Charles Daubney took a lease on the manor of Hampton Court from the Knights Hospitalier. And a lease at that time allowed a lot more freedom than the lease today, in that he was allowed to build something fine enough to enjoy a visit from the king and queen. What do we know about the manor and the visit.
4: Yeah, but it's 1495 and 1503 and it's the kitchens. They're the only really substantial surviving piece from Domini's tenancy. And as you say, yes, there is a fascinating history before, not enough documentation to sustain a chapter, but it was owned by these warrior monks, which is the most unique crossover brand possible to the Middle Ages. And they were renting it out. And because Domini was the Chamberlain, and um, the Lord High Chamberlain to Henry the Seventh. he was an influential enough man that he was given this very generous lease. And the kitchens that he built as he expanded Hampton Court into a manor for himself are wonderful because they give an idea of the scale of hospitality. the early tutors did if you go into them today and i always tell people start with the kitchens i love them partly because of its freezing the staff still light the fires there but also because it gives you this sense of the hustle and the bustle of the place and the kitchen is i think always the heart of the home and really hampton court has that so he does this big set of renovations between 1495 and 1500 the only clause in the lease is that he has to keep the chapel as it had been. He has to salary the priests for the knights, and he also has to pay for the continued sending of requiem masses for the former knights. But Henry VII comes to celebrate the completion in 1500, and then Elizabeth of York comes to visit early in 1503, shortly before her own death. So it's not a royal property yet, but it certainly has a lot of royal footfall by the dawn of the 16th century.
3: And this will only continue. So our next stopping point is with Wolsey, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, Henry VIII's right-hand man, who built a palace here sufficiently spectacular that it was here that Henry hosted the visit of Charles V in fifteen twenty-two.
4: Yes, which I did not know going into it that the Habsburg Emperor had been feasted there with his intimate retinue of two thousand and forty-four attendants. And what I love about this is Wolsey had been in a game of sort of architectural tit-for-tat with William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who was building his palace for Otford. And when Cardinal Campeggio, who of course is a lot more famous for adjudicating or feeling to adjudicate on the marriage between Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, came to England many years earlier, he went to Otford, because it was the grandest palace then. But when the Emperor arrived by then, Hampton Court had outsparkled Otford. So yes, chapter two really looks at this visit of the emperor in 1522. What does it tell us about this dawning age of empires and the way in which Tudor diplomacy happens? So it's quite interesting that Charles V is someone who Wolsey thinks very highly of and Wolsey doesn't think of people highly easily. He can be quite a firm judge of character and he's very impressed by Charles V. And I think sometimes we've maybe reduced the Habsburgs to a bit of a a historical joke and actually seeing just how substantial they could be was interesting. And also I found some sources from people who'd worked there about what it was like for the servants to have to prepare for a visit like this. And it's exhausting. So hopefully chapter two lets you see what it was like to host a state visit and what was at stake at a state visit early in the reign of Henry VIII. I think one of the things that struck me so much about Wolsey and Hampton Court is that it is a symbiotic relationship. In many ways, Hampton Court is almost, for anyone familiar with the Gilded Age of... American history, there's an element to which these houses become the symbol of the ascent of an individual or family, the Vanderbilts, the Rothschilds, the Astors. Hampton Court is like that a few centuries beforehand. Woolsey doesn't exactly come from nothing, but compared to the aristocracy, he does, and they are very happy reminding themselves of this when he gets in their way. And even, I mentioned a young Irish nobleman, James Butler, even the people waiting on him or Henry Percy come from old money families. And here is this archetype of new money who has built a palace grand enough to host an emperor. So in many ways, Hampton Court, to me, as much as it is now inextricably associated with Wolsey and his decline, I think the closest you come to that extraordinary man is that house. The personality and the palace formed each other equally, I think.
3: Yes, and it's so grand. I mean, the first court, base court, that we go into is very much of Wolsey's design. The gatehouse may now be lowered, but effectively what we see when we go in there is the space that Charles V would have seen.
4: Absolutely. In fact, if anything, we're seeing a slightly dimmed version. As you say, the gatehouse was two stories taller Maybe in the perfect metaphor for Woolsey's ambition, it was slightly too tall and eventually collapsed under itself. But yes, Charles V would have been brought in through there. And I don't think it's too dissimilar to what he would have seen. And that's part of the really exceptional joy that I felt going back there as I was doing the research, because the amount of history that has floated onto the walls of Hampton Court. And as you read the story, you realise you're so close to feeling that you're seeing what they saw.
3: Yes, I often say that. I lead groups around the Tudor Palace at Hampton Court and I often say to them, this is a great line actually from Natalie Gruniger, that when you're in those places it's only time and not space that separates you from the people of the past. Now the next moment we want to look at is a crucial one in the history of the Tudors which is the post-coronation celebrations of Anne Boleyn. And Henry VIII. And one thing that particularly came out of your chapter for me was this obvious point, except that I hadn't clocked it before, <laughs> obvious when you see it, that Henry's interest in architecture suddenly starts with Anne, which in other words says it's her influence that's sparking it.
4: Totally. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book was a lot of these people that you see, you're seeing them in a different angle. It's not always them in the totality of their life. It's them at this particular moment at Hampton Court. In Anne's case, as you say, right after the coronation in 1533. I was aware there's been some quite interesting work being done among Irish historians about the Butler family and the fascination they had with architecture and how cutting edge they were, had been for many years in their patronage of the arts. But obviously Anne's grandmother, who she spent a lot of time with, was a butler. And I was intrigued to see some of the butler heraldry turn up in Anne's heraldry and at Hampton Court. But also her father was big on architecture. The the Boleyns as well got this love of architecture. And as you say, Henry VIII has no interest in architecture prior to 1533, when the royal accommodation of the Palace of Westminster burns down. Henry's not overly bothered, he just borrows rooms from the Archbishop of Canterbury when he goes into London. And if you look at what he does with Hampton Court when he takes it from Woolsey, say from about 1529 until Anne becomes Queen in 1533, he sort of just cobbles on together these haphazard and quite ugly, architecturally inconsistent extensions or expansions of the palace, and it's right after Anne arrives for the first time as queen, that all of a sudden there is this detailed, ambitious, architecturally forward-thinking, quite chic set of expansions. And actually, as much as we've talked about Woolsey, I think, and this, I'm aware to many listeners, this could produce an eye roll of intense proportions, but to say that Anne Boleyn has been understudied feels like saying that the Titanic's been understudied. She is omnipresent in Tudor history, but there are still bits of her that are overshadowed by the rest of her life, particularly by the end. And to a lesser extent, by the initial circumstances of her rise. And it's that bit in the middle when she's not on the rise and the downfall is not yet on the horizon that I think we're still not really appreciating some of the things that she was capable of. And I think architectural patron is one of them. So I think the look of Hampton Court Is Wolsey. The size of Hampton Court is Anne Boleyn because it's through her that the entire wing that becomes what's now the Baroque wing, but what was then the Queen and King's private apartments is designed. So, in some very strange way, that famous enmity between Wolsey and Anne Boleyn found its brick and mortar tribute in Hampton Court. I think they're both equally responsible.
3: So, give us some sense of how Anne and Henry's Hampton Court differed from the one we know today.
4: As you said, there's the Tudor wing, you've mentioned that, and there is the Baroque wing, which is how they're referred to at the minute by the curators. The Tudor wing, as we see it today, is predominantly the public rooms. Things like the Great Hall, the Great Watching Chamber, the Chapel, and the Privy Council Chamber at the end of what's now called the Haunted Gallery. When you get to the other end of the Haunted Gallery, you take a leap through time. You take one step and all of a sudden you're in the 1700s. And that's because the entire, let's call it the private wing that would have been built for Anne Boleyn was torn down in the 1680s and 1690s, partly because it doesn't seem to have had the architectural heft of the public rooms in that Henry VIII could be quite an impatient architectural patron. So it's interesting to see that a lot of his palaces don't weather the 17th century. They're good when they're built, but their foundations are not strong enough. So William III and Mary II tear it down and replace it with the Baroque wing. That's where you go if you want the Stuart and Georgian story of Hampton Court, which is fascinating, equally fascinating in its own right. But the skeleton of the Baroque wing is what Anne Boleyn had installed there in the mid-1530s. You see a lot of things that we know from the surviving records, if not from the surviving architecture, of her taste for comfort and luxury. I find sometimes when you can, if you can, find the domestic tastes of people, you take such a big leap closer to them and understanding them. So the fact that she had hot and cold running water in her bathroom, I find fascinating. So the hot water would be pumped in to her bathroom, but it would be (laughs) heated on the other side of the wall by unseen servants who then had to pump it through for her. She had a huge wardrobe facility, and then the more standard rooms like her closet to write letters, bed chambers, audience chambers, and oratories to pray. So you do see her building, I think, what was intended to be a life at Hampton Court. It was going to be a very grand palace. And so the Queen's apartments that later play such a huge role in the palace, they are almost completed. the time Anne's life unfortunately is completed and we don't really know what they would have looked like because Henry VIII and his third wife Jane Seymour have them gutted and they restart maybe there's really only one logical reason why you would do that it's maybe just slightly too reminiscent of Anne but tragically for Queen Jane because she dies at Hampton Court the rooms still aren't finished by the time she dies so the first queen to live in them is Catherine Howard so, there's really a trio of very unlucky queens associated with the inauguration of that particular wing.
3: And I just want to pick up on what you mentioned about the Irish heraldry, because one thing you do very well is bringing an Irish dimension to the hitherto English story, I suppose, of Hampton Court. And it's utterly fascinating when we think about the badge that Anne adopted on marriage, the falcon crowned standing. On a tree stump or a woodstock, out of which spring roses, Tudor roses, allusions have been made before now to this, and I've thought of it possibly as being a kind of Yorkist badge, you know the falcon and the featherlock. But you're pointing out that actually we can look in her own family as well as at royal precedents to try and find her adoption of heraldry.
4: Yes, so the butlers are the draw my band. I'm glad you said about the Irish and English because I was very keen to write a British history as opposed to an English one. And the butlers, this dynasty are extraordinary and they're fundamental to the history of Ireland. They ruled the bulk of the south-east and they were hereditary earls of Wormund. And I hadn't realised, I think a lot of times we think the Berlin claim to the earldom is nonsense and them desperately social climbing. And actually, it was the one that everyone thought it was very solid. They clearly were the rightful heirs. Unfortunately, their cousin was the one with the soldiers next to the estate. It is fascinating to me that she was very proud of that ancestry. And another sigil she used was the griffon, which was also theirs. And so was the leopard. It's just she uses all of it. And again, another thing I did not know, I think there's this tendency to think that Thomas Beling got the Viscounty of Rochford, that it was because of Mary Boleyn's alleged liaison with Henry VIII. I did not know that Rochford was a subsidiary English manor of the Earls of Ormond. So I think Henry VIII was giving that to him, pacify him over this legal dispute. And there's many things that that feature into it, but you go to Hampton Court today and what they've discovered, which again, I love is they recently found the last remaining white falcon from Anne Boleyn's apartments we think was probably rescued by a workman. It's on display in the Great Hall, I would encourage everyone to see it. And you think there's this falcon that if you go to Kilkenny in Ireland where the Ormond Castle is, that falcon is equitous, it's all around Kilkenny Castle. I think for her, she grew up expecting that her father would succeed his grandfather as Earl of Ormond. And I think for the Boleyns, it was a very important sense of identity because there's no Duke in the Irish peerage, So the earldom is as high as she wasn't then. So essentially she has a Duke of Norfolk for a grandfather and she has the Earl of Warmond as her great grandfather. So I think they all grew up expecting Thomas would get it. And I don't think picking the Falcon was an accidental choice. I think she was very clearly saying that she was the Earl of Warmond's
3: daughter. Yeah, that's wonderful. So in other words, when we see that crowned, we're seeing an expression of the arrival of her family, that they have been elevated to a position that they obviously think should have been theirs anyway.
4: Yes, that's exactly it, I think. And I also didn't know that there's, again, the idea that the Wiltshire Earldom they get in England is another thing of the Berlin social climate, But the Ormond Earldom and the Wiltshire Earldom were tied together until they backed the wrong side in the Wars of the Roses. So there is a sense of Anne presenting herself through her heraldry as you say, getting what was rightfully there is not reaching for something new.
3: Very nice corrective. Our next stop and our next resident at Hampton Court is with Anne Bassett. And this is actually another way we're thinking about British history, I suppose, because she's the daughter of Honour Lady Lyle, whose husband and the girl's stepfather was Arthur Plantagenet Viscount Count Lyle, Henry VIII's uncle, but illegitimate safely so, and Lord Deputy of Calais. Tell us about Anne Bassett and her role in October 1537.
4: Yes, perfect. brings us to chapter four, 1537, the Maidens' Chamber, where all the unmarried, the six unmarried ladies in waiting, the maids of honour reside. Anne Bassett is a gift to historian because her family were probably no more enthusiastic letter writers than anyone else in the Tudor period, but theirs survived. So they are a gold mine, an often quite gentle but sad figure of her stepfather, Arthur Plantagenet, and the absolute force of nature, which is her mother, Lady Lyle, who comes as an Austin-esque mother, always trying to find social promotion for her daughters. So yes, Anne is from a Devonshire gentry family. Her and her sisters go with their mother when she marries the governor of Calais, and Calais is fascinating because it is the idea that there was this tiny rump of the Plantagenet Empire. Alan Plantagenet was one of the last people to govern it in a strange way. The family had backed the wrong horse. They had been very assiduous quarters of the Boleyns. They also had a sort of social friendship with Henry Norris. So in 1536, it looks like their courtly credit has gone up in smoke. and they manage to persuade the new queen, Jane Seymour, to consider one of the girls to join her staff. Jane then changes her mind, and it's only in the autumn of 1537 that Queen Jane says, okay, there is a space, which I think shows us the Jane Seymour that you see in the book. Again, it's looking at someone from different angles, but the Jane Seymour in the palace, I find much more interesting than I've ever found her before because she was a lot tougher than I had given credit for. She really was a very strict manager of her household and immune to flattery and persuasion, which I go into in the book. But I found her less soft and more substantial than I had given her credit for, and I think a lot of people give her credit for. And there's quite a, not an overly pleasant condition to this, which is that Queen Jane can't decide which of the two Bassett sisters she'll take. So she says, we'll send them over from Calais to Hampton Court and I'll decide on site. So you can't imagine the sibling rivalry and the nerves the sisters felt when they arrived. And she picks Anne, and I use that chapter firstly to show a different side of Jane Seymour, but also to take you inside what it was like to work as a lady in waiting at the court. There were a lot of rules, particularly about what you could wear. And so I use these sources to try to give the reader a step through the journey into Hampton Court, because at this point it's still really a building site. Henry's doing a massive series of renovations and continued expansions. And also the way in which personal luck and likability made or broke your career at the Tudor Court. There doesn't really seem to be any firm reason why one sister's picked over the other, except as Jane says herself, she'll pick which one she prefers.
3: Yes, it seems really cruel when you think about it, making them undergo that very long journey and then pitting them against each other for royal favour. And Jane surely would have known that. She had been a lady in waiting herself.
4: Yes, I have to say this was not Jane Seymour at her best. One thing I will always say, recently started saying, is sometimes you have to step back and think, that famous Agnes Strickland takedown of Jane Seymour when she said she mounted the consort's throne when it was still slippery with the blood of her predecessor. But yes, think about it that way. She probably was afraid she was going to slip in it. I think she was understandably nervous and she followed the rule book to the letter. But there are things that she does with the Bassetts that seem needlessly cruel. Not monstrously cruel, but pettily cruel as you say, bringing them over from Calais. And then when she's picked one, she just leaves the other sister and it's left to cousins to swoop in, to figure out what are we going to do Are we going to find her somewhere to stay. She uh, She admits that she knows she's being too strict. There's a bit in, which I find fascinating, where she tells Anne Bassett, your clothes are too French in cut. But knowing how expensive it is to make dresses, she says you can wear them out, but after that they have to be in the English style. And then a couple of hours later, she sends a messenger and says, really, I take it back, get rid of them and wear the English style. And you think you've just admitted that you know how expensive that's going to be to the family and you're going to go ahead with it anyway. So she comes across as someone who follows the rules at the expense to perhaps her own happiness and certainly the happiness of others.
3: And just a quick point on the Frenchness of Anne's clothing. Is this because it is a little bit more risque than Jane is happy with? Or is it, as we're often told, because of its association with the previous queen?
4: I don't think it's to do with the previous queen. So I had a trundle through the inventories of Henry VIII, and one of the things I found, this idea that Anne Boleyn only wore the French hood and Jean Seymour only wore the English gable hood is not true. Jane owned, what sounds actually very beautiful, French hoods seated with emeralds. So I don't think it was their headdress that was the problem. I don't know what the problem was. Interestingly, John Hussey, who's an agent of the family, the Lyles, in London, says that the French style of dress was very flattering to Anne, Bassett, excuse me, who was considered very beautiful, and the English style she was forced to wear in was much less flattering to her. So maybe Jane is worried about a potential rival in her household that would be completely understandable if she was. And actually, if that was her fear, it was justified because Henry does notice Anne Bassett. When Jane is withdrawn to her chamber, he comments in front of his courtiers how beautiful Anne is. And we know that from a letter written by a courtier called Peter Mutas, who was there when Henry said it. But it could also be, maybe that's applying too much logic to human emotions and interactions sometimes. Because I think when you're nervous or when you are very conscious of a difficult situation, sometimes you can be inconsistent and you can flip-flop on your decisions because you're constantly second-guessing yourself. So I think it's less that it's risque, less that it's associated with the Boleyns. I think maybe it is a nervous yet personally firm and sometimes excessively proper queen trying to monitor her household. But that's just from piecing together the sort of flotsam and jetsam evidence we have.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
3: Now, you say the first of the queens really to inhabit the royal palace, because when Catherine of Aragon had been there, it hadn't been a royal palace, was Catherine Howard. And most people might think of the terrible thing that happens to Catherine Howard at Hampton Court, which, of course, you've written about before in your biography of her. But you tell us also about an interesting diplomatic moment, as it were, the story of Catherine Howard and Anne of Cleves dancing together.
4: Yes, this brings us to chapter five and the Christmas of 1540. And it's the Great Watching Chamber, which is one of my favourite rooms. And Anne of Cleves is brought to Hampton Court to celebrate some of the 12 days of Christmas to advertise to the world that she has no reason to complain against Henry's much-vaunted agonimity. And she's fabulously happy. And actually, she does turn up. She's no longer as thin as she was. She's recovered her appetite, which suggests maybe the anxiety she had felt when she queen has proceeded she's dressed in a very expensive new wardrobe cutting edge of fashion she enjoys wine gambling dancing but a lot of the diplomats at hampton court think How on earth is queen catherine going to manage this the diplomatic minefield of the queen that is hosting the queen that had been and catherine lands on no one ever erred on the side of kindness and if in doubt, an excess of good manners will usually see you through most tricky situations. So she bombards her with gifts and attention. And there's this fantastic moment where Anne of Cleves sinks to you the deepest curtsy possible. And Catherine says, no, you shouldn't curtsy to me. And Anne of Cleves refused to get up. And it's this sort of fantastic manners off that the two of them have. But they do dance together. And they seem to have a fantastic Time, I think Anne's probably being slightly more strategic here because interestingly, after the spell at Hampton Court, Henry is due to allocate some new land to her that will generate more rent for her household. And she gets a very nice parcel of land after that Christmas at Hampton Court. So I loved writing that. And I loved writing about a Tudor Christmas. That chapter for me, I think, hopefully captured the splendor and the savagery that run within the Tudor court, because on the surface, this is a grand celebration. But underneath, everyone's terrified. They're all nervous. And as much as it ends in triumph for Anne of Cleves, two courtiers are arrested, one for being too liberal, one for being too conservative, and they're both sent to the Tower of London. So it's this window into the glittering terror that is happening in England in the 1540s.
3: Now, One association people have with Catherine Howard at Hampton Court is down the processional route, more popularly known as the Haunted Gallery. We apparently have her ghost. Can you tell us this legend and then tell us whether it has any veracity?
4: Chapter six the Haunted Gallery brings us to 1541 and a little bit in 1544. So we get wives five and six, but as you mentioned, I would written a biography of Catherine Howard before. And it presented a little bit of a challenge because I didn't want to repeat too much of what someone might have read in Young and Damned and Fair. But you can't leave Catherine's story out of Hampton Court. It's so inextricable to it. So I decided to write about it from the perspective of a minor member of the royal family, Lady Margaret Douglas, who was attached to Catherine's household and was also King Henry's niece. And that's squared the circle. So really that chapter from the perspective of of someone watching this scandal unfold and trying to piece together what's happening when Catherine's downfall begins at Hampton Court in the early winter of 1541. The story goes that when she was confronted with allegations that she had lost her virginity outside of marriage to a man called Francis Durham, who she promised to marry, which as you've mentioned before, actually the last time we were on here, we said that actually is under canon law, reasons for the annulment of her marriage to Henry. She's very insistent that that she had not promised to marry him. But in a panic to save herself, the story goes, she broke past her guards who were trying to keep her in her apartments and she ran down the processional route screaming for mercy to her husband who was in one of the little rooms off the processional route that overlooked the chapel. So he was hearing mass. And just before she gets to him, she is caught by the guards who drag her back to her apartment screaming for mercy. And the legend is either chill feeling of dread that comes over some people walking down the haunted gallery or if you were a Victorian sightseer, the sound of screaming, is the specter of Queen Catherine from 1541. No one knows yet where this came from. We can't trace in the sources where it begins, which is quite fascinating. I actually think it is possible that she made some kind of dash for it. If she did, it would have to have been on the mid-morning of Sunday, the 6th of November, 1541. It's a very narrow window between her finding out and Henry leaving Hampton Court and never seeing her again. He went to the Palace of Whitehall while she was being investigated. The layout of her apartments make it tricky. She would have to have run fast, which is not to say it's impossible. It's maybe because her household numbers had been reduced when she was being held during the investigation. It's possible some rooms were more empty than others than they usually would have been. It's possible, but I don't think that necessarily means it's likely. But some people have said there's no way it happened. There is a way it happens. But a lot of things have to line up. Her speed, inattentive servants and she has to have decided to run pretty much at the last room of the Queen's apartments to get there. So it's possible, but not necessarily probable.
3: While we're telling the truth about things, can you tell us the truth about <laughs> Barnaby Fitzpatrick, Edward VI's so-called whipping boy?
4: I loved the Barnaby Fitzpatrick chapters. That's chapter seven, which brings us to 1551 and the mid So yes, Barnaby Fitzpatrick, or Brian Michael Porig, as he was when he was born into the Irish aristocracy and then had, the people say it's an Anglicized name, I think Barnaby, there has been element of Latin there as well, that he's going to Barnabas or something. But he's brought over, he's also half butler, and they've lost none of their punch over being close to royalty at this stage. So Barnaby is sent over to England, joined the future Edward Sixth household. And as you say, the legend is Barnaby's the whipping boy. So every time Edward Sixth or Edward Prince of Wales, misbehaves, he's such an exalted person the staff and tutors dare not whip Edward. So every time Edward does something bad, they beat Barnaby and make Edward watch. And it's a very enduring story. And actually, politically in Ireland, fascinatingly, it becomes used in Irish nationalist histories in the early 20th century. And you see why they use it. In terms of driving the point home with the subtlety of sledgehammer, a young Irish boy beating for the mistakes of an English prince is political propaganda 101. The whipping boy office never existed. And it's interesting, it's told about Edward VI and about Charles I. And in both cases, there's no contemporary evidence. And in fact, I think the way the Tudors saw bringing children up, they would have thought, spare the rod and spoil the child. So actually, Edward was beaten when he made mistakes in this, maybe not as severely as James VI was in Scotland, but he certainly was physically reprimanded. Barnaby was not the whipping boy. And in fact, Barnaby becomes his best friend. And this chapter in 1551, Barnaby's about 17 or 18 years old. He seems to have been easily smitten with ladies. He's quite good looking, athletic, a bit of a rogue, confident. Everyone likes Barnaby except the Protestant chaplains who have been brought to Hampton Court to preach the three-slash-four-hour daily sermons that Edward insists upon for his court, which just sounds absolutely purgatorial for them to have gone through. But the chaplains identify Barnaby as a gateway to sin, and Edward becomes very distressed about Barnaby's interest in women and the idea that if you have lustful thoughts, you're falling further away from God. So that chapter, in some ways, because obviously we we all know Edward dies young, but Barnaby would have been his right-hand man. Everything's happening this summer to set Barnaby up to be the favourite and to be one of Edward's talking about military tactics with him and foreign policy. And I think in some ways, actually, that chapter, I felt quite sad writing it because it's really the chapter of Lost Hopes and it's the chapter of youthful possibility. And you do wonder what Barnaby's life would have been like had his friend not died so young. So that chapter I found quite moving to write. All the what-ifs of Edward VI's household just get buried with him. So I enjoy, really find it interesting to go back to that period in 1551.
3: The last things I'd like to ask you about the Tudors are about two turning points, two kind of knife-edge moments, if you will, that happen in the same decade. First to Mary I in 1555, and then in 1562 for Elizabeth I, these crucial moments that are playing out at Hampton Court that could have changed everything.
4: Yeah, one's nearly a birth, one's nearly a death. So Mary comes to Hampton Court for what she believes will be the pregnancy. And it is that great mystery of the pregnancy. So that's Chapter 8 and the Privy Gardens in 1555, looking at what happened in those months when Mary is awaiting the child that does not come. And all the hope that is resting on this, perhaps, pregnancy, that this child will be the child of the Catholic Counter-Reformation and it will continue the re catholicization of England and Wales into the next generation. Of course, it doesn't happen. And seven years later, chapter nine, The Paradise, Elizabeth, the first brushed with death and smallpox happens at Hampton Court. And really that whole chapter is that one week when it looks like she's going to die and there's no successor and she's only been queen for four years. And the sense of terror that her staff and her advisors feel as they realise we don't know who's next. And the Church of England, as it has been reborn, is four years old. So yes, what would have happened if Mary had a child at Hampton Court in 1555, or Elizabeth had not recovered from smallpox in 1562? I think you're right, two of the great what-ifs of British history there. So those two chapters were really ones about writing about, yes, very personal events and the way in which people invested in them so much at the time.
3: Now, inevitably, I have dilly-dallied over the Tudors, but I do want to ask you a few questions about the 17th century. So we've got a new king in a new century bringing new divertisements to Hampton Court, both secular performance and sacred disputation. And this feels somewhat contradictory and confusing at one level because you talk about the ways in which the plays contain some Puritan provoking elements of same-sex attraction and women on stage and so on. Can you tell us what transpired under James and what sort of agenda you think the new monarch had?
4: Yes, James I, England's James I, arrives in 1603. The first stuart christmas james may be bisexual but certainly on that Kinseyan scale much closer to homosexual than in otherwise and his wife is perfectly accepting of this they've done their duty they have the children all anna asks is to be left alone with the money she wants and the household she wants anna of denmark just a huge amount of time for she's great fun james has two secular and sacred personality types so at this first christmas one of the beefy young aristos that he's fallen for is sir philip herbert who really just comes through the sources as the archetype handsome but thick posho by his own admissions all he knows are horses and hunting that's it and how to have a good time and with the hubristic confidence of the very good looking philip does not practice the dance steps in costume for this great mask in the great hall and with all the overwrought splendor that the Stuarts will be famous for they sew way too many jewels onto Philip's costume. So when he tries to do the dance, he begins to struggle under the weight of it. It sounds like sort of the last three reps of a squat as he's trying to lumber through the hall with these diamonds and sapphires weighing him down. But yes, so this William Shakespeare is practicing there. They have all these plays. The men are playing the women. The men are kissing each other. The Puritans are not pleased. I said at one point, they think that the Stuart Court is just Sodom and Gomorrah with a props department, and they're getting very angry. And everyone gets rip roaring drunk, even the Queen, and Philip's nursing a hangover until sort of halfway through 1604, it sounds. Everyone's hungover, except James, who can really handle his alcohol. And as soon as the Christmas is finished, he starts the Hampton Court Conference, where he commissions the country's leading theologians to translate what will become the authorized or king james bible and he is really involved in this discussion to create what he calls one perfect translation into the english tongue of scripture so you went from raucous fabulous silly celebration vegas with coronets in the great hall and the next week it's in the same building they're commissioning a bible a translation of a holy text that has shaped inspired, harmed, uplifted so millions upon millions of lives since, and finding the attention to detail on how seriously they took the mission to translate that Bible and the way they did it. That I found profoundly moving.
3: Now, James's son, Charles I, comes to Hampton Court in the 1640s twice, in very different circumstances, although in both instances he fled. Can you tell us about these occasions and the consequences of his flight.
4: I started this more sympathetic to Charles I than I emerged, in that I was sort of staring at the page as I was thinking, what on earth are you doing? Hampton Court, Charles in 1642 and 1647, he's a bungler, and look, he has many great qualities, not the least of which is he has this absolute abhorrence of bullying, and he says the only kind of people who are cruel are cowards but there are many great qualities but political acumen and trustworthiness are simply not either of those qualities and yes he arrives in 1642 when london has risen up against him and he flees there with his wife and three of their children she actually probably henrietta maria is a much more sympathetic and substantial figure than she's given credit for and then they flee again as the civil war engulfs them he's then brought back as a prisoner in 1647 to negotiate with Henry Ayrton and Oliver Cromwell about what the future will look like now that the Royalists have lost the Great Civil War. To some extent, I do think there was an element of him being slightly manipulated by Cromwell, but I think that's interesting, not fundamentally important. Charles makes a series of decisions at Hampton Court, which I find impossible to defend. He is someone who makes a very clear and conscious decision that he will restart the war, rather than continue negotiating. So Hampton Court is the nexus of the Royalist movement in the 1640s. It will then become the nexus of the Republican movement in the 1650s. But it is where Charles I rolls the dice to try to save the monarchy as he wants it to continue versus complete annihilation. And unfortunately, the dice lands on the annihilation side of things for him.
3: It's fascinating what you say, that Hampton Court becomes important for the Republicans as well. And this is almost, well, this is very unlikely. You know, Oatlands, you point out, Oatlands Palace was sold and demolished. Hampton Court could have gone the same way if Oliver Cromwell hadn't taken a shine to it. What did Hampton Court look like in its Republican years and what happened there in 1658?
4: Yeah, so chapter 15, the temporary Palisade, gives you an idea of what it looked like from the outside, which is not much because Oliver Cromwell, they ringed it with defensive wooden fortifications because there were so many attempts to assassinate Oliver Cromwell after he becomes the country's real first Republican head of state in 1653. Certainly after what he did in Ireland, there are many Irish people who want him dead, there are many Scots who want him dead, and there's pretty much every royalist wants him dead. And there were numerous royalist assassination plots. But, again, absolutely correct, I think one of the salient themes of this that I found just kept cropping up was the way in which happenstance and personality saved the palace or shaped the palace And you're right, if Oliver Cromwell hadn't taken such a shine to Hampton Court, it might have gone the way Greenwich and Oatlands, and ultimately Richmond did. A lot of these palaces emerged from the Republican period either so decrepit they had to be demolished, or they were demolished at the time. The Cromwells use Hampton Court... As their weekend house, which is very grand for the first Republican head of state. His daughter Mary is married there. And inside the palace is still pretty splendid. Henrietta Maria had the plumbing revamped from the first days from Anne Boleyn. Maybe it's something about queens who are brought up in France, but there does seem to be a recurring theme. The plumbing is excellent. So it's a comfortable place. He interestingly, though, has a more intimate domestic setup. He and his wife live in the Queen's apartments. The king's apartments are turned into offices. Pulpits are put as a good Puritan in the courtyard, but in 1658 his favorite daughter Elizabeth He calls her Betty Comes back to her apartment's look over the garden and she comes back and she never leaves and she's in her late 20s But she almost certainly has a form of cancer and in 1658 Hampton Court becomes completely focused on her final days and Cromwell abandons all political duties won't go into London just stays by his daughter's bedside and we have receipts from apothecarists coming up with palliative care for her, etc. So, really, it's on the one hand the physical layout of Hampton Court shows you the politics of Cromwellian rule and what it did to so many people. And the interior offered me a chance to show you him as the private man and father. And one does not cancel out the other. I think that's important to say. Sometimes I think we're in a rush to use personal virtues as a justification for political feelings. That's not what that chapter is about, but it shows you these two remarkable
1: sides.
3: Absolutely. And it balances that empathetic picture with also making sure we know about what was happening over the previous decade in Drogheda and other places. Now, the irony is, of course, is it's the Cromwellian occupation that makes the palace fit for a Restoration monarch. And I would love to move forwards with you thinking about Charles II and indeed the changes that happened to Hampton Court later in the 17th century and we go on there are 25 chapters we go up to 2016 but that will be it for today and anyone who wants to know more is going to have to pick up a copy of the book and hear stories that are just as entertaining as those that we have heard today so the book is called the palace gareth russell it's been a real pleasure thank you for your time
4: thank you so much for having me
3: Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars, and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors.
0: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project,